turn with me now to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 20. How thankful we are that Psalm 69 is is not the ending, but rather in the mournful and dirge-like psalm, we're reminded that we have a living God and that Christ indeed is our, and the Holy Spirit are our comforters. Well, Luke chapter 20 and beginning in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to me, wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and she dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die any more, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that they dared not question him any more. And he said to them, How can they say that Christ is the son of David? Now David himself said in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we need your help indeed not to become like these people who claimed to know Scripture but rather twisted it to their own destruction. Those who claimed to be followers of the living God and to care much about your word when in fact, Lord, they were hypocrites. Lord, we pray that we'd be neither of these things, but rather, Lord, we would be alive because we are in Christ and therefore in the living God, who is the God of the living, and that, Lord, you might enable us in this truth to be blessed and to be a blessing to others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We come now to this final section of the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, or chapter twenty, and 
We are taking a larger than usual chunk of it. In fact, in my Bible, it's three different sections. But as we say, these, not even the chapters themselves, are part of the inspired text of Scripture. They were added, and likewise, the sections that we have. And sometimes it actually doesn't help. It hinders our understanding because of the way that the text is divided up in these sections. And I think that's true here. Because apart from taking them as a whole, you have no idea why it is that Jesus goes on to talk about the, uh, how can, in, in verse 41, how can they say that Christ is the son of David? It doesn't make sense unless you take this as a unit. So we'll take this as a whole this morning. Now we know the context is that the Jewish leaders have been trying to catch him out either to gather evidence to hand him over to the governing authorities of the Romans that he might be killed because they had this murderous intent, or at the very least to find some sort of way that he would be diminished in the eyes of the people, that he'd be discredited in the eyes of the the masses so that they could no longer protect him as they had been doing. But they did not succeed. On every case thus far, they have failed And so in verse 26, but they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Oh, that they would have kept on keeping silent. But no, someone else comes to try their hand. In this case, it is the Sadducees. It says in verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him. Now, The Sadducees, what do we know about them? Well, the main thing that we need to know about them is told right there. A reminder that we do not need extra-biblical information to understand the Scripture. If it is crucial to the interpretation of Scripture, then Scripture provides it. And that crucial piece of information that is as needed for us to understand what this whole thing is about is that they deny that there is a resurrection. Now, we know that to deny this and other parts that we have of Scripture, we put together a picture of people that are rationalists. They deny everything that is supernatural. They deny, for instance, we know from another place, they deny that there are angels. And therefore, all that there is are things that can be seen. There is no life after this life, but only as the animals we die There are no spirits. There are no angels. There are thoroughgoing rationalists. And sadly, they are not coming to ask this question so that they might learn from him the truth, but only again with their axe to grind in order to demonstrate their superior reasoning and to destroy the truth of Scripture. How sad indeed. Well, in the midst of this exchange, however sad and pathetic is their occasion for coming to him, in the midst of this exchange, we have the wonderful truth asserted and declared and vindicated that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. My friends, let us be reminded that it is very often the case that in the midst of heresy, in the midst of error, the church has the opportunity to clarify the truth. And it is, I have seen it in my own life, that I have been all the more renewed and reinvigorated and uh, and solidified in the truth 
when that has been challenged by error. And so we pray, my prayer this morning is that we, as we see this most basic truth imaginable, that there is a resurrection, that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, that as we see Jesus himself vindicate the truth of this, that we ourselves would be renewed in this most important foundational truth of the Christian faith. The title this morning is The God of the Living, and there are three points. First, the Sadducees cavil. Second, Christ vanquishes the Sadducees. And third, Christ vanquishes the scribes. We begin with the Sadducees cavil in verse 28. Teacher, Moses wrote to us. Now, let me just say for a moment that I I use the word cavil in my point very pointedly. Uh, It's not a word that is in much use today. It's a sort of rare word, and it means quibble, but it's more than that. It's not just a a minor thing. Sometimes there are valid quibbles, right? You can have something. You can have this this wonderful setup with this wonderful microphone. It's the most suitable microphone that you can get, actually, for preaching. And there might be just some little quibble with it, that it has to be pointed exactly at you for it to work right. But there's not something fundamentally wrong with it. It's, it's designed to do that. It's a quibble. It's not something that's, that's really, uh, and I'm, it's not a false critique of it. It really is true that if I go over to this side, you can't hear me. It's not a quibble. Or it's, not a, it's not a cavil. But a cavil, on the other hand, is something that is false. It, it's, it's an objection that has no basis in fact. And so as you read Calvin's Institutes, for instance, you frequently come up with that word because Calvin points out that the objections of the false teachers of the Roman Catholics and others who object to these things that he's teaching, these things of the gospel, they are not real objections, but rather they are cavils. Well, as I say, in verse 28, they they come to him and they say, Teacher, Moses wrote to us. Now, why Moses wrote to us? Right? Well, because, useful to know, they only accepted the books that Moses wrote as authoritative. They rejected all the rest of the Old Testament. So they rejected the prophets. They rejected the Psalms, all these other things. And to add to it, they were rationalists and they were anti-supernaturalists. So saying something like Moses wrote to us is probably a more accurate statement for them than that the word of God, the inspired word of God Says The Holy Spirit says they wouldn't use that kind of language, would they? Moses wrote to us that if a, brother, a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now they're speaking of Deuteronomy 25.5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It's an aspect of Old Testament law given to the people of Israel called Leverite marriage, in which the, the supreme and important thing is that every part of the line of Israel have continuation and that covenant seed carry on from generation to generation such that even if a man dies without children, that he, he himself, as it were, his line does not die with him, but yet uh, a brother raises up seed to him. Now, there is, 
can I point out, nothing about the resurrection in this particular sentence, in this particular verse. All right, there is no teaching having to do with the resurrection in here. And yet they come speaking about the resurrection. And let me use this to bring to you one of my sort of applications, by the way, which is that if you want to learn something about Scripture, you go to the place that speaks about that issue in Scripture. Okay? You always go to the place that speaks the clearest about Scripture. I say that because in our day, there are many who go to some place that is obscure, some place that is irrelevant, in order to uh, twist it and make it to contravene those places that speak most clearly on the issue. All right? Don't do that. Don't be like the Sadducees. Now, from this starting at a wrong place, this specious reference to Scripture, and they always, there will always be a specious reference to Scripture. Again, do not be dazzled. Do not be amazed when somebody comes speaking the words of Scripture to you, even though they're not believers, they're not true teachers. It's always the way Satan himself does that, doesn't he? When he comes with the temptations, every one of them is based on a specious reference to Scripture. Specious because, again, it's not a legitimate use of Scripture at all. So I say the passage has nothing to do with the resurrection. And from that specious reference to Scripture, they reason falsely. Verse 29. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her. And in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. From this very wrong uh, use of scripture, they then build up an a argument that is false. Now, it's interesting to me that we have, we've come to this passage the very week after our logic class begins in theology. Yes, uh, we, we teach theology, or we teach logic at the seminary, and we are teaching it for the first time. And the reason why we teach it is precisely for reasons like this. This is a false argument. It comes to a false conclusion, and the reason why, among other things, is there is false reasoning in this. They are making an assumption that is simply not true. Their assumption is, their presumption is, that everything that is going to happen in the next life, everything in eternity, is going to be exactly like what happens in this world? Okay? Now, if that were true, the reasoning would maybe be valid. But it's not valid because the assumption isn't true. Things in the next world are most certainly not going to be exactly like things in this world. And of course, as I say, they're not really coming to this passage or any other passage to submit to it in truth, to interpret it in accordance with the rules of good biblical interpretation. They are coming for a pretext in order to reject the truth of Scripture. And that's why this is nothing more than a cavil, a quibble. This is a Sadducee's cavil. Based on a part of Scripture that has nothing to do with the matter at hand, based on assumptions that are false regarding that the the next world is exactly like this one, they construct a, a, a situation, an artificial situation, that appears to discredit the truth that there is a resurrection. That's a cavil. Secondly, 
Christ vanquishes this cavil. Christ vanquishes the Sadducees in their error. Verse 34, And Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. See, he exposes immediately this false analogy from between the way things are now and the way that they will be. There is a difference. There's a vast and extreme difference. Of course, there has to be a difference. Among other things, just the fact that we're alive forevermore in eternity. And that basic truth changes everything. So much of the situation in this world is based upon the cycle of, of life and death. And because there is a cycle of life and death, and there must be many other things that go along with it, including marriages. Uh, uh, the the uh, wonderful thing in uh, Matthew Henry is he points out in our, our situation in this, this world that, of course, it makes much sense that there are weddings because there are also funerals. It makes sense that there are births because there are also Burials, And in this life, there must be a continual renewal of the, the, of the people, indeed a, a growth of the people for the time, precisely because this situation is in a situation of death. We do not live forever in this world. Now, I say it was based on a false, false analogy between the way things are now and the way that they will be in eternity. There is this great difference, and far from being a parallel then that is so close that it's going to destroy the idea of the resurrection, on the other hand, it is shown to be precisely false. It was all just speculation on the part of the Sadducees. They didn't know this. They weren't taught it by Scripture. They just made this speculation. And on that basis, they'd come to their wrong assumptions. And to add to it, Mainly, they ignored the good and necessary consequences of the part of Scripture that they actually did accept. Now, that is the heart of this passage. That is the heart of our sermon this morning. Because even the part of Scripture that they said that they did believe would have taught them the resurrection were they willing to receive it. Verse 37, But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, again, why Exodus 3.6? Why not something like Job 19.25? Job, like I read in the reading this beforehand, teaches very clearly that there is a resurrection. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh, in my flesh, not even in my spirit, but in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. See how much is taught in that wonderful passage in Job. It's very, very clear, very, very explicit. But Jesus doesn't point them to Job 19, but to Exodus 3. Because in accordance with their rejection of all other parts of Scripture except for the books of Moses, except for the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture, he is going to show them that they are wrong from what they accept. 
Now, he is not sharing in their error. He is not saying, you're right about rejecting the rest of Scripture. But rather, he says, all right, you say you believe in the first five books. Let me show you the truth that is implicit even in them. Because, my friends, all of Scripture has one author. One author, the living and true God, and he does not change. And everything that is explicitly brought out in other parts of Scripture is there implicitly from the very beginning. So even though we do not have an an explicit teaching with regard to the, the resurrection to be found in the Pentateuch, as we would wish it maybe perhaps to be, Rather, if we look carefully, we see that implicit truth declared everywhere. And so it is with every, one, every other of the truths of Scripture. And he's going to demonstrate their error. Now I'll read from Exodus 3, 6. Jesus is quoting from it. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And my friends... The crucial thing is that this chain is all constructed in the present tense. Not, I was the God of Abraham. I had, uh, or I was at some point, the God of your father. Your father, when he was alive, he was my child and I was his God. But rather each And every one of these things is constructed in the present tense. And in verse 38, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Do you see what that means? He says, I am at this moment, 400 years after Abraham, I am his God. Now that could not be true if Abraham were dead. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living And in order for him to still be at the moment that he was speaking to Moses, the God of Abraham, that means that that Abraham must be alive somewhere. And indeed he was. And indeed if Abraham is alive somewhere, then there must be a resurrection. They could have seen that if they wanted to. They didn't. Jesus exposes their error. He vanquishes the Sadducees and he reminds us, it says, for all live to him. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. That, that the living God is a source of life and, and not just merely in the, in the sense of being on life support, but in the fullness of life. Think about the consequences or the implications of another very basic text in scripture in Genesis 15. Genesis 15.1 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Now, friends, beloved, what did Abraham get in this world? Did he actually receive all the promise that he was promised? No, he he didn't. Actually, the only thing he had was a lot of trouble and a, a burial plot for his wife. It's the only thing he realized of the promise In this life. But God says. Not only I'm your reward. I'm your exceeding great reward. The only way that could possibly be true. Is that Abraham is alive today. With his Lord in heaven. And indeed there is a resurrection. Because God is the God of the living. And not of the dead. 
Now, Christ absolutely vanquishes the Sadducees. And as he explains the implications, the good and necessary consequences of the scripture, there is a group of people who are cheering. And it is indeed the Pharisees who accepted that there is a resurrection. And they are cheering him on for his tour de force of logic and of reason and of demonstrating the right implications of scripture. In verse 39, it says, Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. Now, the scribes, that was a vocation that was usually taken up by the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, at least, they cared about Scripture. They believed it all. At least they said they did. They believed not only the books by Moses, but also of the Psalms and also of the prophets and all the rest of it, the writings, all of it, they believed. And for that reason, they very often were employed as scribes. At least they cared about Scripture. But why this compliment? Because Jesus had vanquished their foe, their opponent, and they were glad for it. And this was a true assessment. He had spoken well. I'm going to say a little bit more about Jesus speaking well and how we need also to speak well in the application section. But let me just say, That every once in a while, even those who are otherwise in error can say what is true. And the Pharisees absolutely said what was true here, that he had spoken well. In fact, according to Mark 7.37, Jesus has done all things well. We gladly rejoice in that truth. But after seeing that Christ has vanquished the Sadducees third, we need to see that Christ also vanquishes the scribes. Because in verse 40, after that, they dared not question him anymore. They are done. The, everyone who had any kind of little logical trick, anyone who had any kind of specious argument to bring to Jesus, they, are, they have been vanquished. They have been, their arguments have been destroyed, and they dare not question him anymore. But Jesus is not done with them. And Jesus was not going to merely accept this 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 flattery, this compliment, this empty compliment from the scribes. He does what is said in Titus 1.10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped. He has stopped the mouths of the Sadducees and their lie regarding the resurrection. But now he's even going to stop the mouths further with regard to the Pharisees. He's not flattered by their compliment. Rather, they are guilty of the exact same sort of inconsistency, saying that they believe in the word of God and not accepting for themselves the consequences, the implications of scripture that is given to them. And so that's the point then of why he goes on to say this little thing in verse 41. He said to them, how can they say that Christ is a son of David? Now, David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Friends, the reason why he said that is because these Pharisees claim to believe all of Scripture, and particularly the Psalms and the prophets, which are absolutely full of of prophecies and of truths regarding the Messiah. It described him in every detail. It said exactly what he was going to to do and what he was going to be like. 
And here he was in front of them, and they rejected him. They refused to believe that he was the Christ. He was pointing out their gross inconsistency. How can David call him Lord if he is his son? The answer is because he's the living God. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's the son of God. That's how David can speak of of one who is a descendant. His great, 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 great grandson and, and call him Lord. Because David knew by the power of the Holy Spirit he was not merely going to be his great-great-great-grandson according to the flesh, but he was going to be the incarnate God-man. David knew that. The Pharisees seemed to be woefully ignorant about that. And that's why then in verse 45 he goes on to warn his disciples. Then in the hearing of all the people, meaning those scribes themselves, he said to his disciples, so here he's just... He's just given this challenge to the scribes. Oh, you, th- you think I speak well? You think I'm the tr- you're glad that I vanquished the Sadducees? Well, let me pose a little issue for you. And then he turns to his own people, his disciples, and he says, Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, And for a pretense, make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. They're going to have a greater condemnation even than the Sadducees. The Sadducees have been brought up to reject much of Scripture, not all of Scripture. Indeed, if you looked very carefully, even in the Pentateuch, you would find, for instance, in Genesis, you would find in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of the coming Messiah. But they didn't receive the the parts that spoke most clearly and directly of the coming of Christ. And now he's speaking to these scribes that make their great pretense, make their great show of believing in Scripture, make their great show of being such wonderful scholars of it and of being such holy people and of making long prayers. And he says these are going to receive greater condemnation. They have the word of God, but they don't believe it. They make a show of being God's people, but they're not it in reality. Their hearts are far from God, and they do not believe in the only Son of God right there in front of them. And their situation truly is dreadful. Well, the Sadducees come with their cavil, and Jesus vanquishes them. The Pharisees, the scribes, then come in their hypocrisy, and Jesus exposes it. What then do we do with these things? What do we do with this truth that that God is a God of the living and not of the dead? What do we do with it? First of all, I want you to understand that the resurrection is real. Now, friends, for the unbeliever, for those who are outside of Christ, that is reason enough to tremble, actually. If you know that the day of resurrection, the day is coming when the Lord shall call all from the grave and bring them to life, that is a problem for you. Because there you will be held to account by the living God. And I pray that that is reason enough for you to do what neither these Sadducees nor these scribes would be willing to do. At least not most of them. 
which is to come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Some of you have known about there being a Messiah. Some of you have heard about there being a Christ, a Savior, whom if you believe in that you'll be saved. But you keep him at arm's length, you keep him at distance. My friends, that will do you no good. If indeed you claim to know anything at all, if you have any part of Scripture, then you know that the truth of Christ is implicitly there. If you believe any part of it, then do the one thing that is consistent with it. You know there is a resurrection coming. I think that even the Sadducees, deep down in their heart, knew that. Right? They tried to deny it. They tried to find ways around it. But I think even deep down in their hearts, God had implanted the truth that there really was a resurrection. Don't be like them. Don't act so inconsistently with the truth that you know, but rather come to Christ in faith. And you know, the fact that the resurrection is real is not reason to tremble for the believer, but reason to rejoice. This is the whole point. You know, when Paul says, look, if there is no resurrection, if if this life is all that there is, we are of all men most to be pitied. Because otherwise we are, living, we are being persecuted as Christians. We are doing all this for absolutely no reason. But if on the other hand there is a resurrection, then it is all worth it and much, much more beside. We all live in this body of death, this body of decay, constantly facing various trials of every kind, difficulties in our families, difficulties in ourselves, in our health, finances, in job, in school, every sort of difficulty that there is. But my friends, if there is a resurrection for God's people to life, not to to hell forever as with the unbelievers, but a resurrection to life in which God will be our God not only now but for all eternity, then it is all more than worth it. And indeed, all the troubles of this world could not be compared with the glories of the heaven that is to come. And that is a wonderful and joyous truth. In all of our loss, in all of our grief, in all of our problems, we do not look for the world to be better now. So many, so many preach that false gospel that Your life can be better now if you believe. In this world, we can transform it and make it like a heaven on earth. That is not not the gospel that I find here. The real gospel is that life is tough here. That there is a resurrection. And that God's people will be brought into the presence of Christ. There to be loved and to love in perfection. Indeed, Edwards calls it a sea of love. Floating And immersed in a sea of love for all of eternity. Perfect joy, no death. To be indeed like the angels. Remember that part of scripture in this text that we're looking at. That you're made equal to the angels. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Angels who feel feel no pain. Who do not die. They don't cry. There's There's nothing to be sad about for them living in perfection and perfect joy, made like them in that way in the respect of never dying, but made even better than that. Because we know something else. We know what it's like to cry. Has it ever been the case that those who know what it's like to do without something are so thankful to have it when they, when they do? 
You know, we say those who come from immense privilege, they can't even really enjoy the good things that they have because they don't know any different. There's a trivial example. I was thankful to do some maintenance on my, my, my mowing machine, my lawnmower, and was reminded it's a really good mower. But James doesn't know any different because he's never had anything. He didn't have this horrible, rusty thing that we could barely get started beforehand. Mark's thankful for it. Well, Mark in that sense is like the, like the redeemed in heaven that know what it's like to lose their loved ones. Know what it's like to suffer. Know what it's like to be persecuted for the name of Christ. And all the other things that could be said of God's people in this world, we know what it's like. And therefore our joy will be all the greater as we're given eternal life in heaven, even surpassing the joy of the angels. The resurrection, my friends, is very real. Secondly, I would say that we should beware of the scribes and the Sadducees. Beware of them. Beware of the rationalists who say this world is all that there is. Beware of those who say that the world created itself and we are just animals. People are so surprised at the godlessness and the terrible atrocities of this world. And I'm, I'm surprised that it's not worse than it is. When people point to individual instances of, of mass murder, of, of genocide, of, of all the rest of the things that could be, all the dreadful sexual perversion. Sometimes, yes, I, I agree for all these things, but I sometimes wonder why it's not worse. Why? Because pretty much every last one of our schools teaches that we're animals, mere animals. And the fact that we then act like animals is no surprise at all. Beware of those who say that there is no resurrection. You know, I've mentioned before, it used to be that atheists could not give testimony in a court of law in this nation. You know why? Because who can possibly trust someone who doesn't think that they're going to be held account for the secrets of their heart in the new, the new heavens and the new earth? Who, who there's, don't believe that there's a day of judgment. Don't believe that there's anything more than this world. Therefore, they're going to get away with whatever they can get away with. And they will lie through their teeth if they can. And yet, actually, this is the thing that is being trumpeted. This is the thing that is being lionized. As a truth, and the reality that there is a resurrection is being marginalized. Well, friends, that's the world, and that's, that's, that's their situation. We're sad for them. We pray that they would come to repentance and faith. But as for us, don't believe it. Beware of these rationalists. Beware of these atheists who say this world is it. And likewise, beware of the critics who want to chop up the word of God, just like the Sadducees. And say, well, we'll receive this much of scripture right here up until this point, the end of Deuteronomy. We think that that has authority for us. But all the rest of us is bogus. You know, there are critics who do this. who say that we'll believe some portion of scripture, but not the rest of it. That's why I'm so, you know what, look, I, I for years and still do have a Bible with red letters. But I don't even like that much. Okay. I'm thankful that, that Nathan found this a Bible that doesn't have any red letters. 
It's not a big deal, but why? Why? What's the implicit thing? What is the message that is being said when a publisher makes some of Scripture in red and the rest of it in black? That somehow these words in red have more authority than the rest of it. It's not true. Every last word of this entire Bible is truth itself. and There's no error whatsoever in it. Beware of the scribes who want to chop it up and receive some and not the other. Thirdly, I would say desire to speak well. Desire to speak well. In the parallel passage, Jesus says to these people, you do greatly err. The things that you're saying, you are in great and dire error. Because you don't know, you haven't understood scripture. That's their problem. And so I would say, A, you need to learn the content of scripture. The only thing that keeps us from such terrible error is that we receive the whole content of scripture and we know it. It doesn't do us any good to believe in theory that all this is God's word if we don't even know it. We have to know the content of Scripture. And if they had simply learned the content of the Scripture that God had given them, they would not have fallen into such terrible lies. You need to learn the content. But particularly and especially in this context, you need to learn the implications of Scripture. Okay. Now here's actually where we diverge from some others, some other believers. Right? This is an important point. This is actually a reform distinctive. You know that the Westminster Confession of Faith was actually the basis for a number of other confessions, and it was pretty much cut and paste. You know, here's a confession, and we'll just change a couple of things here or there, having to do with the sacraments or having to do with church government whatsoever. But the rest of it, all the bulk of it, we're just going to cut and paste into our confession. But you know, there's one part, even in the very beginning, that was not 1689 Baptist Confession, and I have the greatest respect for my Baptist friends, and I'm so thankful if they're confessional and they hold to that confession because it's a good confession. But that one line, they delete. They delete the good and necessary consequences. Let me explain what I mean. We say that it is not only the explicit statements of Scripture, but also the good and necessary consequences which are, have the force of the Word of God. Okay? And so we, it is not merely that we read something and say, this is the explicit teaching and we'll believe that, but also what is implied by it. Now, did you know that the, 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 if there's one truth that all Christians say is the basis of Christianity, the most essential, it's certainly the doctrine of the Trinity, and you know that there is no explicit statement in all Scripture to be found that says in, in a single verse, there is a Trinity. One God, three persons, are all equal. It doesn't say that. Rather, it is the implication of everything else that is said. It is the implication of what is said in Genesis 1. It is the implication of what is said in Matthew 28. It is the the implication of what is said in John chapter 1. You, You look at what is said and what must be true because of it. It is a logical inference rather than an explicit statement. Now, if we don't have the good and necessary consequences of Scripture, we don't even have a doctrine of the Trinity. And maybe you know that there were, in fact, rationalists in the 17th century who said that very thing. 
they would argue against reformed. They would argue against God's people by saying, you guys claim that there's a trinity. Well, show me the verse that says in so many words. No, we believe not only in the word, the explicit statements, but also of the good and necessary consequences of Scripture. And that is what all of theology is about. Do you ever wonder? So, so Bill is supposed to be a, a theologian. I wonder what he, what he, what he does. How he just must study other stuff and come up with new stuff. Or, no, not at all. Not at all. The whole work of systematic theology is taking the good and necessary consequences of Scripture and working out. That's what it's about. And if it's not that, it's not the truth. No. So we should desire to be able to speak well by knowing Scripture and knowing its implications. Fifthly and finally, I just say a word with regard to marriage. The Lord tells us in this what ordinarily happens in this world. Now, I would say I mentioned, Matthew Henry pointed it out as an issue in this fallen world, but I'd remind you that actually marriage was an institution before the world fell, before we fell into sin. This is God's ordinary and good provision, ordinarily, that we should be married in this world, that the godly seed might be continued and indeed might increase. There are exceptions, Christ himself being a notable exception, as well as perhaps some of the apostles. But we should be reminded as Christians in this world of what is the baseline of normality and of the marriage of of one man and one woman in order for these good things to be. Now, that's not the situation in eternity. There will be no differentiation between those who are particularly called to singleness, those in the minority and those in the majority that are, are married, and indeed sometimes the troubles that go along with it. We will all be like the angels in eternity. But in this life, The Lord has instituted ordinarily marriage, and young people, this indeed should be integral to your plans. The world only cares about one thing, that you're useful to them economically. Why is it that everyone asks you, what are you going to do when you grow up? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because that's all they care, that you're useful to them in some way, making money, being economically productive. That's the world's only interest, that they have a new consumer to sell stuff to. The church is interested rather of What sort of husband or wife are you going to be when you grow up? Are you going to be the kind that is able to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and able to teach them the contents and the logical implications of Scripture in order that from one generation to the next, the one true religion might be known and embraced and propagated? Or rather, are you going to be somebody that's so taken up with the things of the world that you're not able to do your own children any good? Well, may God help us all to live in the truth and reality that God is the God of the living. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, how we pray that you would help us indeed to live in accordance with your truth, to know and to accept and to believe the truth of Scripture and all of the things that are implied by it, Implied in terms of our theology, Lord, that we know there truly is a resurrection, truly that you are the God of the the living and not of the dead, and that Abraham is surely alive even this moment. 
And Lord, also the implications for our own lives. And Lord, there are so many of them. We've only scratched the surface. But Lord, truly that we should not live as those who have no hope, but rather to live in joy, even in the midst of great suffering, knowing, Lord, that it is only for a time, for a moment, for a season. And soon enough we shall be made like the angels, and even risen to a greater height of, of joy, as, Lord, you bring about a situation in which we will die no, law, no more, but rather to live continually in the presence of the, of the one God that we know and of the Christ whom we love as his bride. Lord, how we pray that you'd help us to be consistent with this and not to be as hypocrites, not to be like those Pharisees who said they believed these things but didn't really. We ask, Lord, that rather, even despite ourselves, you might glorify yourself in granting that we would live as those who know that God is God of the living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We conclude our worship singing to God's praise, hymn 282, You Humble Souls That Seek the Lord.